love having different speakers come because it hits us a different way. I'm listening to him going, I, I say half of that. I say half of it, but I don't say it like Ireland. And I learned a new word today. Par. The power of God. I'm thinking, I thought you were going to give a golf illustration. The power of God. The power of God. I'm like, where, he's going to, God's playing golf? And so, but uh, we were, I was blessed this morning. Let me tell you, uh, I was so blessed. So Phil, come on up. Phil Scott, guest speaker. Good morning, everybody. Okay. I did tell the first church service this morning that I might have to speak a little slower so everybody can understand me. Did you all get that one? Way. Now we start talking proper. Um, don't be slagging me off for the language, because we invented it, all right? So you lot just took it and changed it, and you spell all your words wrong and everything else. So I'm sorry for getting stuck into you over that, but you've adulterated the very language that we speak, all right? Is that okay? So we'll teach you how to say some words as we go through this morning. And, and, and uh, Pastor Shane has already alluded to that. Uh, good to be here. A little bit of a brief background to me. Um, I was 27 years in the fire service, fire department in Northern Ireland. Served across the country in various different stations over that time. I retired in 2020. I know you're all looking at me going, seriously? Are you retired? Yes, I'm retired. And uh, But this is what I do now. I, I was doing this. I've been doing this for years, but... It gives me the opportunity to do this a little bit more full-time now than I used to. And uh, thank God he's opened the doors for me to travel across the nation on a number of occasions to do that as well. And obviously back home in Ireland, that's an important thing too. Um, I was a teaching elder uh, in the, the church that I was involved with for a long number of years in church leadership. But back uh, about four or five years ago now, I felt the call to be full-time itinerant in terms of uh, ministry attachment. And so that's the connection uh, to Joe is uh, Firefighters for Christ. Been involved with that for well over 20 years now. Been involved uh, in different uh, places back home, obviously, and across different parts of the world. You'll, you've heard the talks from Joe about Firefighters for Christ, what we do, Firefighters for Christ. So that's sort of my background. Um, we're here to look at the Word of God. We're here to challenge I don't apologize up front for that. I know you expect a challenge in this church. In fact, someone, I met Phil last night and he told me, hit us hard, bro. Something like that. Was some phrase along those lines, Phil, wasn't it? So I, if, you, if you're annoyed at me this morning, afterwards you need to take it out on Phil. Alright? Is that okay? Turn with me to Isaiah 6, chapter 6, 1 to 8. And I'm going to read... Through those verses this morning, before we get in and we break it down verse by verse uh, th- this morning. Um, so, as you're turning to that in your Bibles or opening it up on your electronic device, uh, Isaiah 6, 1 to 8 says, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has taken away, is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Verse 8, the one we usually go to in this chapter. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? He said, what did he say? Here am I, send me. Send me. I would imagine if I asked for a show of hands in here this morning as to how many people have prayed that prayer of verse 8, here am I, send me, 
I would imagine that if you've been saved and on the road for a while, you will have prayed that prayer. I have prayed that prayer many, many times. And it's so easy for us to go to verse 8 in this chapter without recognizing that there's a verse 1 to 7. Whenever we read scripture, we've got to read scripture in context. Yes, verse 8 is a powerful verse. It was the commissioning of Isaiah at that time. But verses 1 to 7, which is actually what made the commissioning possible. And it's so easy for you and I, as I've said, to get to that place where we waken up or we come here, we're caught up in a little bit of uh, emotion. And forgive me for saying that, and you'll hear my heart as I get through this this morning. And it's easy to say when we're in this building here today, here am I saying me, but what does verse 1 to 7 mean? Because if we don't get verses 1 to 7 right, then guess what? Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time saying, God, here am I saying me. Because Isaiah had to get to this place, but if you read chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us that Isaiah was a prophet during the reign of Uzziah. And so therefore, Isaiah was already in the work of God at this moment, but yet Isaiah had to go through this commissioning process. This was his moment. This was his epiphany. This was the day that he decided, whatever the cost, whatever the cost, I am going to serve God. Have you noticed out there that the world is a slightly crazy place? Slightly even a fair term? I don't know if America is perfectly normal. Maybe it is. Maybe America is normal, is it? Is it, just, is it just where I come from? And I love America, by the way. Anything I say today is not, uh, not a go. I love burgers, so I love America. So, you know, as soon as I arrived on Friday, in and out burger. Wow. Double, double animal style. Does give you a little window. Just saying. I know we're live, sorry. Uh, try my best to, you know, keep on top of that. All right. Haven't had my second in and out yet, but I will before I go home. I'm here the next Sunday. I'm speaking up with him later this week. So anyway, let's go through these verses. Let's learn what the Word of God is telling us. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Okay, King Uzziah died probably in the year 739 B.C., depending on which source you read. Doesn't really matter. He was also known as Azariah. Also, doesn't really matter. It just depends where you're reading about him in Scripture. But who was Uzziah? Well, Uzziah started out as a young king. He came to the throne when he was 16 years old. He was a godly king. He reigned for 52 years. He had great exploits for God. He served God. He had great victories against the enemies of the area and of the land at that time. He was very prosperous, victorious. But guess what? As he got a little bit older... In the ways of God, he became full of pride, full of arrogance, and it turned out to be the worst moment of his life because God struck him down with leprosy. Okay, and you can read about that in Scripture. It's there for all to see. Second Chronicles 26. We're not going to go through it in too much detail, but it'll give you there the detail of what it was that happened to King Uzziah. And effectively, King Uzziah had forcefully entered into the temple of God And he decided, he took it upon himself, that he was going to offer incense to God in contravention of the word of God. And the high priest, Azariah, also known as Azariah, tried to stop him. The the group of priests who were there, I think it was 80 in number, tried to stop the king from doing this wrong thing. But as king, he just decided that he was going to do it. And he demanded that he was going to do this. And actually it turned out to be the worst moment in his life. Because Second Kings 15.5 tells us, And the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house. And that was for about 10 or 12 years. His son basically reigned in his place. And he was an outcast of society. You'll know about how leprosy was viewed in the Bible. Leprosy is something that is, is rife today in parts of the world. But people were seen as outcasts and they couldn't be with anybody or near anyone and it was a terrible thing to happen. And as he was standing there offering incense in the way that he shouldn't, the white spot had appeared on his forehead and God struck him down with leprosy. Now, to be arrogant against God could have serious consequences. Let's never lose sight of the fact that God is God. Yes, God is holy. God is good. God is great. God is magnificent. He is all of the attributes that he has. 
but he is God. And I struggle so much whenever we create some sort of an image of God that is the man upstairs. We also have some nonsense coming out across the world that Jesus is my boyfriend. Have you ever heard anything as ridiculous in your life? I'm, I'm telling you, and it's coming out of California as well. And I'm not having a go at I love. I love your country. I feel called to this country. But I'm telling you right now that we have created a humanization of God. And God is God. And if we are arrogant against God, trust me, there is consequences for that. And also, see if we're arrogant against God's anointed, actually, we're in trouble as well. And we should never lose sight of the fact that God is God. And this was a moment that Uzziah obviously would have regretted for many, many years, probably up to 12 until the time of his death. He probably had repented of it, but the damage was done for him. And whenever I was reading about this and thinking about this in Scripture, just to sort of reiterate and make the point, uh, God took my mind to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the chapter there where it talks about us remembering Jesus' death on the cross by partaking in the bread and the wine, in the act of communion. But we also know from that chapter that it's actually not a good thing to eat and drink unworthily. Paul talking to us as the church, the Corinthians as the church, and us as the church. And here's what it says in verses 27 to 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's what the Bible says. Now I want to reiterate the point here that sometimes people are sick and it's got nothing to do with sin. The example of that is whenever Jesus healed the blind man, you remember the disciples saying to him, is this because of his sin or his father's sin? And basically Jesus said, neither because this is for the glory of God. So I am not saying if people are sick that there's necessarily something wrong in their lives. But what I am saying is that we could be sick as a result of being arrogant against God. And if we eat or drink unworthily, in other words, we come before God in that act of remembrance and we know that our life actually isn't what it should be. There's an arrogance and a pride against God there. And I need to challenge those of us who have been on the road for a long time because it's so easy to become self-righteous. And I've been saved for well over 40 years. And God has really, really challenged me in this last 12-month period about self-righteousness. Because it's so easy. It's even easier for us standing up here. Trust me, it's so easy for us. As Bible teachers, they look and go, I need to tell them that on Sunday. There's a real Irish coming out there, was it? I need to tell them that on Sunday. That's why they speak in Belfast, like. Right? I need to tell them that. You know what? (laughs) I need to hear it. And so everything that I preach here this morning, trust me, I've stood and looked in the mirror. Because I know that I know that I know that I am only saved by grace like everybody else in this room if you're saved. And guess what? Any one of us can slip into self-righteousness because that is actually what sin is. See, whenever we think of lust or lying or all of those other things, they're only symptoms of a condition called self-righteousness. They're only symptoms of a condition called pride. Why? How do I know that? Because whenever the Garden of Eden, what did, what did, God, or sorry, what did Satan say to Eve? Eat that tree and you'll be like God. That appeals. Self-righteousness. And see, you and I, if you actually think about, actually when you get to the bottom layer of sin, it's because we know better. Self-righteousness. And God has challenged me in this regard. And I'm telling you, whenever we look at Scripture and we dive into it, sometimes what's going on in our lives could well be related to how it is that we actually approach life. And if the first challenge here this morning is that we should recognize that actually, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, we are nothing. Absolutely nothing without God. Nothing. Doesn't matter how educated we are. Doesn't matter how many schools we've went to. 
doesn't matter how smart we are, it doesn't matter how long we've been saved, if we don't recognize that we're nothing without God, and it's harder the longer we're saved that bit actually, then we need to have a good long look at ourselves. Who was Isaiah? Isaiah probably came from one of three different routes. It's hard to tell whenever you read or try to study as to who Isaiah was. The scholars will tell us that he came probably through one of three different lines. He could have been an aristocrat. Aristocrat meaning that he had blue blood, that he came some linkage to the royal family itself. Some people would suggest that he came through a priestly role, a priestly family. Some others would suggest a prophetic line. I believe that certainly he was absolutely a prophet. We know that from Isaiah 6. But also whenever we read Isaiah 1.1, the very, very start of the book, it says that Isaiah was a prophet during the reign of Uzziah. So before this moment, I would contend that he was a prophet. He was in ministry. He was working for God. But yet he didn't have his moment. As we will see when we get through this. He was going through the motions potentially. Yeah? And he was involved in the work of God, but he hadn't quite got to where he needed to get to. You know what? I would imagine that the majority of people in this room this morning are saved. Some may not be. We'll talk about that as we get through this. But is it a surprise to know that maybe just we're not quite perfect? Is that okay? Is that fair enough? I know you're looking up here at me and thinking the big lad's retired, he's 50, he's pretty perfect. Trust me, I'm not. I know that's a shock to some people, 50. It's the weather back in Ireland. You just need to soak yourself in water every day and you can look like me too. Yeah? Stand out in the rain. That's what we do. I've even aged about three years since Friday with your weather. And the burgers. Burgers and the weller. It's going to kill me before I'm 70. Back home in Ireland, going strong at 100. Just saying. All the spuds. Potatoes. Sorry, where am I? Isaiah 1-1. I believe he was a prophet. It was tragic for Isaiah. This moment was a difficult time for Isaiah because the verse 1 tells us that this was the year that King Uzziah had died. And he was there in the temple, he was serving or he was working or he was there in a state where he didn't quite understand what was happening. Yeah, possibly. And so this was a year that a good king had fallen. A good king had died. Yes, he had his problem. Yes, he had made a terrible error against God. Hands up if you haven't made an error. Yeah. And this guy had died. He was a good guy. Isaiah was there in that moment and thinking, what's going to happen now? Where is God in all of this? Has anybody asked that question in the last two years? Where is God in all of this? I don't know about you, but this, we've had COVID for the last two years. Thank God that we seem to be coming out of it. Your country and mine, there's other countries where they haven't come out of it yet. But you know what? I'm not here to talk about COVID today. I'm just here to talk about that over the last two years and back further than that, maybe five, ten years, whatever it happens to be, has the world ever been as a confusing place as it is now? Whenever the Bible talks about as in the days of Noah, as in the days of Lot, are we there? So, what is it? The coming of the Son of Man? Are we on the home stretch? Are we all going to be in heaven before we know it? What are we going to do before we get there? What are we going to do whenever we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you and I have to give an account of everything that we have done whilst in the body? And we will be rewarded or suffer loss because of it. First Corinthians chapter 3, it's there. We could get to heaven as if through fire and suffer loss, a detrimental loss in some description, whatever that looks like. And the point is, what is God doing? Where is God in the midst of this? And even now, whenever we look at the instability across Europe, which is having repercussions across the world, and I know that you guys are paying $6 a gallon for gas. don't know why you call it gas, because it's a liquid, but let's not go there. We call it petrol, because it's a liquid. All right? Not a gas. 
You go and try and get gas out of the end of a nozzle to fill your tank and see how far you get. All right. Sorry. Not sorry. Where was I? Six dollars a gallon. Dry your eyes because I pay about ten. All right. <laughs> Albeit I can drive from one side of the country to the other in an hour. Okay. I'll give it to you. But the fact is, with the economic state that we're in, yeah? Where's God in all of this? Has your energy bills been up? Has everything went up? Inflation's out of control. I'm not here to talk about inflation. All I'm saying is, do you know where God is? Because it's not going to get any better. Do you really think we're all going to wake up in about a week's time and it's going to be back in the 1960s? It's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and more confusing and more confusing. Why? Because as the remnant, as we talked about last night, we're going to step into the gap. What does Ezekiel 22 say? I was looking for a man who would stand in the gap and I found no one. Are we going to stand in the gap? Come on. Are we going to be the people of God who will say, whatever the cost, it doesn't matter if we have to combine our resources. It doesn't matter about the American dream. It doesn't matter about the house that I own, about the truck that I drive. None of it matters. Because God will look after me and I will serve him. And it's my job to take as many people with me as possible. I'm not sorry for shouting, by the way. We're never going to get through this in an hour. (laughs) Where was God? Where was God? Have you asked that question? Come on, let's be honest. Last two years. Have you asked where's God in all of this? Right. Verse 1 tells us where God was. He's on the throne. The Lord is on the throne. He is high and lifted up. And the train of his robe fills the temple. God is on the throne. Do you know that the throne of God is mentioned 35 times in the book of Revelation alone? And it's symbolic, but of course it's symbolic, it's actually happened, but it's symbolic in the sense that we can see the importance and the grandiose of an, an, an infinite holy God who sits on that throne. Yes, he is omnipresent, yes, he is imminent, and he has all of those things that we know that God can be everywhere at all times, but God is on the throne. And so whenever we face our difficult circumstances, either today or tomorrow morning, when the rubber hits the road... Doesn't hit the road today. Trust me, it's easy to serve God in this building. Would you agree? We can serve God fantastically well inside these four walls. See, tomorrow morning, whenever you're faced with that person who God has put you with in order to teach you patience. Have you ever asked God for patience? Trust me, he's going to give you a co-worker. Yeah? Do you know that the throne of God is mentioned 35 times in the book of Revelation? God is on his throne. Isaiah may have been downtrodden because Uzziah was gone, but God was saying, don't worry about it, Isaiah. Uzziah may not be on his throne, but I am on my throne. Don't worry about what we look at today, because why? You may not be on your throne, but God is on his throne. Do you think this has took God by surprise? Do you think God has woke up this morning and he's scratching his head? Do you think if you and I go out that door and turn left instead of right, God's going, I planned that he would turn left, but he's turned right. What am I going to do? God will not be taken by surprise. God is the supreme superior being who ever existed. Yeah, past, now, and forever. And he lives inside of you and I. And it's not somehow some sort of a battle between God and Satan. How ridiculous is that? God is in control. He is supreme. He is sovereign. And we need to start believing in the phrases that we use. How many times have you used the phrase over the last two years that God is sovereign? We go through our door, we face the situation that we face, and we put our head between our knees. God is sovereign. Start believing what we say. Yeah? Don't worry about it. Bible says, not just this Irish man, Northern Irish, I should say. Let's not get into the politics of that. We've been fighting for 800 years in Northern Ireland because of phrases like that. Not going to get there. I know I'm online. The position of the throne was high and lifted up. 
It was superior in every way. It was an awesome statement, a magnificent sight. And the train of God's robe filled the temple. And it's an absolute sign of importance of how God is important and the superior nature of that. Because whenever you see someone with a, a, a train of the robe that fills somewhere, it speaks of the importance of that individual. And obviously, God was the supremely important person. Yeah? And that's what we're seeing here in this picture. And Isaiah was in the midst of this, looking up at it. And he saw how important and how magnificent and how uh, infinitely powerful God was. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Interesting thing to look at here, because these seraphim are only called seraphim here in Isaiah chapter 6. Doesn't matter that I've told you that now, completely irrelevant to your life, you'll still get through today once you get your dinner. Okay, I'm just telling you that it's the only place that is mentioned in scripture. These creatures are mentioned elsewhere. But with their six wings, this is important, with two wings they covered their face in reverence, with two wings they covered their feet in humility, and with two wings they were flying in action. For too long, churches up and down your country and mine have a focus and emphasis on the action that we should take to serve God. Now don't get me wrong, of course we should be serving God. Yeah, but the Bible also says that we should love the Lord our God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is likewise unto the first, that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And Jesus says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. We need to love God first. That is what we have to do. And we start our relationship and we start our, uh, our service of God in reverence of him. Holy reverence of him. A reverential fear of him. Like it's back to what I talked about in terms of not seeing God as somehow our big brother. Not seeing God as the man upstairs. I hate that phrase. Not saying that in my lifetime that I didn't personally use it. I did. But I've learned now that that's not God. And Jesus is my boyfriend. I don't apologize for having to go with that. Because it's, in my view, it may be colloquial. It may be an understanding between some people and a relationship with somebody. But this is Almighty God. This is Almighty God who lives in you and I. And we need to start in that reverential place. Absolutely there, first and foremost. Secondly, we must serve God in humility and total humility. Blessed are the meek, for they will what? Inherit the earth. We have to recognize that actually we are nothing without God. doesn't matter how gifted or how educated or how whatever it is that we happen to be, and the service and the ministry that God has gave me, it's not mine, it's God's. Let's never forget that. And the idea that I need to recognize that I am nothing without God. And if we have the arrogance of serving God in that way, trust me, he's got a way to take the legs from beneath us. Very often he will. Then we're in action. I remember about 17 years ago, Maybe even a bit longer. A guy came to my church and he spoke. And I only remember one phrase. And he said, how many people here are so busy serving God that they don't know God? And I remember he might as well have took the sledgehammer that Pastor Shane had sitting there last night. And he may may as well have hit me between the eyeballs with it. Because I remember at the time, very busy involved in church ministry. I I was involved in worship. I was involved in all sorts of things. But I didn't know God. I didn't have that daily encounter that I need to have. I didn't have lots of things going on. Yes, I thought, it's okay, I'm serving God. God needed my heart first, not my action. And yes, of course we're called to action. Of course we're called to action. But if you're, if you're just doing action, and forgetting about the reverence, and forgetting about the humility, all you're doing is providing a service. You're not actually serving God. Yeah? Because God wants us what? To love the Lord our God with all our hearts, soul, minds, and strength. And we must start in reverence, humility, and action. Verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The seraphim were calling out to each other, continually proclaiming the glory of God. They repeated holy. Uh, twice, uh, three times, because repetition means everything in the Hebrew language. So we could see that this was the ultimate holiness being declared by the angels of a 
infinitely holy God. It also indicated the three persons in one of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and also the eternal nature of God, the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come. I don't know about you, but I can't get my head around a forever thought. I can't understand that with my finite mind, understanding an infinite God. It's impossible for me. And so whenever we look at the, the, the reference in Revelation 4.8, the same uh, idea of these fiery creatures worshipping God eternally, and it says in if Revelation 4, 8, it says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And these eternal angels will be worshipping God eternally, continuously, all of the time. That's what their jobs appear to be. In worship of Almighty God. And together they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Let's think about the words as we read them there. And God is separated from humanity in His holiness. God is infinitely holy. Yes, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament and the New Testament that we should be holy like God is holy. So each and every day we should be getting up and we should be striving to be more like God. We should be clinging to God and we should be separated from the things of the world. Because holiness is about holding on to God and letting go of the world. That's it in the simplest form. That's what holiness is. But obviously we cannot be infinitely holy like God, but we can strive to be holy. The seraphim could see that the earth was full of the glory of God, and the glory of God is about the splendor of God, the holiness of God, and the, maja- the majesty of God. It also means the heaviness of God. You might think that's a negative term, but it's not. The heaviness of God or the weight of God. It's that tangible, manifest notion that God is absolutely here. Do you know what? If you think God is not near, you know that theologically that's impossible, by the way? God is imminent. He penetrates all things. There's not a place where you can be that God isn't. If you feel a distance from God, it's not a spatial thing. It's a moral dissimilarity thing. And even if you're going through the hardest day of your life, you should feel God somewhere in your life. You may, it may be a, the dark night of the soul, I think someone coined at one time, and you may feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, but you should feel God inside of you somewhere. Yeah? And so if you don't feel that, there's something going on. What is the heaviness? What is the weight? A good, sim- a good analogy for that. Back where I come from, it's very cold. Extremely cold. And in the winter time, and some people confess to this in this church this morning. So I'm going to ask the same question again. But in the winter, where I come from, it gets that cold, I have to put my winter blanket on the bed. Like rusty, tufty firefighter, 27 years, saving people's lives for 27 years. And in the cold, dead of winter, I have to put an extra two blankets on my bed this year. Because I'm freezing. Right? Hands up. Who puts the winter blanket on? One, two. Oh, my word. In Sierra, where are we at? In the Leona Valley, Southern California. Don't ever visit Ireland. Don't even get off the plane. My goodness, you'll turn to ice. If you need a winter blanket here in Southern California. Sorry, not sorry. But the reason why I'm telling you that is whenever I climb into my bed at night, I can't even move because of the weight of the blankets. It's like if if I died in the middle of the night or I had to get out because there's a fire, it's like, come and save me, someone. I can't get out of the bed. That's what the glory of God is. Believe it or not. Obviously in a much more infinite way. The heaviness. The tangible presence of Almighty God weighing us down. Why? Because we can sense and feel God. And I don't want you to see that like some sort of a Pentecostal experience. And I I can say that because I've been a Pentecostal my entire life. I'm not having a go with Pentecost. I struggle with microwave Pentecostal experience. I really do. I really struggle with someone coming forward on a, in a church on Sunday and falling down and being the hiding that they were on Monday, that they were on Saturday. And I'm not suggesting that I'm above any of that thought. But what I'm suggesting is that if we serve God, we serve God 168 hours a week. And not when it's easy here in church. 
And if that's your experience, and I'm not suggesting that it is for a second, but if that is your experience, don't waste God's time, because that's arrogant and that's prideful. By coming forward and thinking, I've got to fall down here. Now listen, absolutely we serve ourselves on the altar of Jesus Christ. Of course we do. But if our motivation is for something other than what it actually is, then it's wrong. Yeah? And we need to serve God in every day and every capacity and every situation and every circumstance that we're in. Not just a Sunday morning experience. The foundations, verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. The angelic being sung with such power that power, there's a word, all right, I want to teach you a word, power. No, you're wrong. Am I able to throw someone out of the church service? Okay, let's try it again. Par. That's P-O-W-E-R. Par. It's not a golf thing. Okay? So whenever we say par, for the rest of today, we say par. That's, I'm teaching the Irish and everything, even, even though it's English, but let's just go with it. All right, so let's, and the, where are we at? The, the angelic being sung with such power that the doorposts and the frame shook as they worshipped. Don't forget that praise is a powerful weapon. Pastor Shane reminded us last night of Second Corinthians 10 and 4 that says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty to the breaking down of strongholds. They're not carnal, they're not flesh, they're not human existence. They are Mighty to the breaking down of strongholds. They are the word. They are prayer. They are fasting. They are praise. They are worship. How does the model prayer start? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The name of Jesus, the name of God, they tell us in the Old Testament and the New, is that call me the great I am, the self-existent one, the one who was and is and is to come. That's who we praise. That's who we sing and that's who we praise. Let me give you an example of that. Whenever King Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament was up against it and there was a mighty nation come to destroy him, what did he say to God? He says, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. God says, praise me. And they started praising and worshiping. And guess what happened? Second Chronicles 20, 22 says, And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. They did not have to do a single thing other than praise Almighty God. Come on. Come on. And I know there's a great emphasis here in praise of Almighty God. But can we praise God tomorrow morning? How did the walls of Jericho fall? Praise God. Come on, we can go through example after example in Scripture. Praise is where it needs to be. And I know we'll have opportunities throughout this morning to praise. But can we praise God in everything that we look at? Everything that we face? The house was filled with smoke. What was that about? Revelation 15 and 8 says... And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Okay, so that's what the smoke was. Tells us in Revelation 15, they had the glory of God, the tangible manifest weight of God, and from his power, his infinite, mighty power. Verse 5, time's running away. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah knew in this moment that he was not holy like the seraphim, and more importantly, he knew that he was not holy in the presence of an infinitely holy God. This was Isaiah's moment, but Isaiah thought in this moment that he was going to die. Because whenever you look at the presence of God, or the manifest presence of God in the Old Testament, or the Shekinah glory of uh, God, in the Old Testament, you have to see that death always preceded presence. We talked about that last night. One person, once a year, in the Holy of Holies, and if that person got it wrong, he was going to die. There had to be death of some description for presence to take place. Why? Because a holy God cannot commune with an unholy person. Something had to die. You look at Uzzah who put his hand out to steady the Ark of the Covenant. I used to wonder about why that happened because when he put his hand out to steady the Ark of the Covenant, you know that he dropped dead. 
I wondered why would God do that? Because God is so holy that he actually cannot commune with an unholy person or an unholy thing. And death always had to precede that presence. Guess what? In the New Testament, death also must precede presence. That's the only way. And guess who has to die? You and I. Yes, we die to self whenever we come to the cross. But as believers, we actually need to die. The old flesh must die. The old man must die. The things that we used to do must die. The sanctification is a theological term where whenever we become Christian, actually each and every day, we must strive to be more like Christ each and every day. I know you hear that constantly here, but have you died? Let me tell you a little dream that I had a number of years ago. Uh, It was 2005, I think it was, and it was around the time that I felt God calling me to ministry. And in my head, it was, yes, God, let's do it tomorrow. Where am I going? A lot of different ideas. Lots of different ideas. But I had a vision. I believe it was a vision or a dream. Call Call it what you will. It doesn't matter. It affected my life. And I'm going to explain it to you now. I remember going to bed one night, and around that summer was a summer of... There was lots of things going on, lots of chat, uh, lots of, I believe, God speaking to me throughout that whole summer. It was that moment where I needed to sort my life out, even though I've been saved for tens of years. And I had a dream. And in my dream, I saw who I thought was my dad, my actual dad, and my two brothers. Sorry, my, I only have one brother. I told you a lie straight away there. Me and my brother, two of us in it. And my dad, who was a very elderly man in the dream, at that time he wasn't as elderly as now, he's in his 80s now. And so in the dream, my dad keeled over, who I thought was my dad, I need to say that, keeled over and died. And he was face down in the carpet in this room, and my brother and I approached him, we went over, we were going to pull him back onto his back so that we could provide CPR so that we could save his life, the thing that we would do. Of course, everybody in the room would do that. And I remember going over, I remember grabbing him by the shoulder. I remember pulling him over onto his back. And when he rolled onto his back, I got the shock of my life. It disturbed me so much. It woke me up. And it affected me for the rest of that day. But whenever I turned him over, guess who? It was me as an 80-year-old man. Now, the first thing was that I look good as an 80-year-old man. If you're not 80 in here, have you ever seen yourself as an 80-year-old? I haven't. I look good. I look good. Okay. Now that I've said that, let's park that. All right? Just to get it out there. I turned myself over. 80-year-old man, dead. Shocked the life out of me. I have to be honest with you. Completely disturbed me because I wasn't sure. Was God saying I was going to die that day? I wasn't sure. I couldn't work it out. And I prayed about it and I thought about it. And some of you are probably ahead of me here. And I prayed all day and I really felt that when I came to that night time, I remember in that moment, I felt God saying to me, Phil, the old man must die. You, you must die. Your flesh must die. Your desires, your personal uh, lookout and life and all has to die. Because if you want to become the person that I need you to be to serve me, to preach the word of God, then you have to die. And guess what? You may not be called to preach and teach like I am. But you're called. Every one of us is called. And guess what? You must die. You absolutely must start cutting off the lumps of flesh that are apparent in each of our lives. And each and every day there should be getting more and more and more. And I'll tell you what else. What you face this year should be worse than what you faced last year. Why? Because that's actually the process of suffering, sacrifice and submission. That is what sanctification is. And if I'm facing the same problem today as I faced last year, then I ain't maturing as a Christian. Yeah? And so if you want some sort of a life or existence where everything's going to be perfect till you die, you better you might as well jump in front of a train today. Because that's not how it works. And unfortunately I hear too many preachers. I've stopped watching the religious channels back home. I've almost broke too many television sets. Honest to goodness, what nonsense I hear. Come to God and your life's going to be a bed of roses. Has anybody read the book of James? Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of every kind. Think James was just having a laugh. Another Irish colloquialism there. 
Is James the brother of Christ? He wasn't saved, incidentally, whenever Jesus died on the cross. Wrote a book on godliness. Consider it pure joy. Come on. Would it surprise you to know that you're not here for your existence of comfortability now? That we're actually preparing for our eternal kingdom? We're actually preparing for the rewards that we receive when we get to heaven or otherwise? And right now our job is not to follow the American dream. Right now our job is actually to serve God in everything that we do. Right across the world. And I'm not having to go at you because the American dream is alive and well where I come from as well. We're all focused on our castle. We're all focused on our big cars. Aren't we? Come on. We may not have cars. We may not have gas. Yeah, we might all have to walk. That's, that's a bigger deal for you than it is for me. I appreciate that. We need to serve God. Isaiah knew that he was not holy like the servant. In the Old Testament, where I covered that, sorry, I've lost my notes. Isaiah saw that he was a man of unclean lips. What time is it? Isaiah saw that he was a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. This was not profanity. This was not cursing or cussing, as you say, but rather it was what we say that divines us. Gossip, criticism, negativity. How do we communicate? How do we communicate about others? How do we speak? How do we speak about the things of God? How do we speak whenever we have a bad day? Do we dwell? Do we go backwards? Do we, the, James also, James says that uh, blessing and cursing shouldn't come out of the same mouth. How many times do we curse? How many times do we actually say, I can't do that? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is what the Bible says. And I know I might sound like I'm having a go at you. I have my bad days as well. But if we can trust God, then we can serve God to the best of our ability. But we need to stop gossiping and criticizing and dressing it up as a prayer request. Yeah? Here, I'm telling you this so that you can pray about it. But where do you hear this? And somehow it's okay because we've prayed about it. Come on, don't be ridiculous. Sorry. Not sorry. Let me read you some verses that I'm running out of time like a steam train here. Ephesians 4, 29 to 32 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander. Along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgive you. Right. I'm telling you, this is actually hard. It's actually hard not to say something negative about somebody. Even You may not even realize that you're doing it. I remember teaching in James chapter 1 one time in my own church. And it says there, James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak. And there's lots of references in James about how bad the tongue is. You all know it, James chapter 3. I don't have time to get into it. But the point is, I remember preaching on it, and the whole week leading up to it, I was so conscious every time I actually said something that I shouldn't have said. I remember thinking by the end of the week, I can't even get into the platform to preach this message. Who am I? And do you know what? Nearly every weekend now, I think, who am I to tell you how to live your life? That's why also James in chapter 1 says that we will be judged more harshly. I don't like that. But it's true. Six and seven. We're nearly done. Six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. Then he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin has been atoned for. Remember who this was? This was Isaiah, who was already involved in the ministry of the church. Guess what? We can be saved, but carnal. Is that a shock? Is that a shock? I know it's not a shock. I listen to Pastor Shane preaching regularly in this church, and I know it's not a shock to you. I've never heard anybody preach fearlessly the way that man has preached. I'll tell you. Unbelievable. So I know you know what I'm saying. He said there earlier on, am I the Irish Shane? I don't, I don't think I'm even as determined and would say things that even Pastor Shane would say. That's okay. Well, it's not okay. I, I, I should be challenged by that, shouldn't I? Yup. The angel ministered to Isaiah. He brought a hot coal that he could not even hold. He needed to use tongs when he brought it from the altar. And he touched his lips. Why? Because he had said that he was a person of unclean lips from a people 
uh, who were unclean in the nature of how that was that they communicated. And you and I, we need to come to the altar that is between us and God. Our sins must be purged by fire. We must recognize and say, woe is me for I am lost because I will die if I become into the presence of Almighty God. I will die because God cannot coexist with something that is unholy. And if you want the manifest presence of God Almighty, you need to start with dealing with the carnality in your life. Yes, Pentecost is real. Yes, the infilling of the Holy Spirit is a very real thing. But I'm telling you right now, if you don't deal with the stuff that's going on in your life, you'll have glimpses, but you will not be changed. And guess what? When you stand before the bema seat of Jesus Christ, whenever you're standing before the judgment seat, you and I will give an account for every word and everything that we have done in the body. And we'll either get rewarded or we'll suffer loss. What does that mean? Don't have time. Let's not deal with that now. And so this is about kingdom living. This is about the kingdom of God. What is that? Because whenever we read scripture, very often whenever we think about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, we interpret in our minds that that's speaking about God or heaven. Sorry, that's speaking about our eternal kingdom. It's not. A couple of scriptures, just to back that up, if you think about it, Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we all know that there is no conditionality around being saved. Would you accept that? All we have to do is be broken before Almighty God. It doesn't matter if we're rich or poor, black or white. It doesn't matter a jot other than we come before Almighty God who has saved us entirely his work alone, justification by faith alone. So if the Bible's telling me that it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven, he's not saying that it's hard for a rich man to be saved. He's saying it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And the book of Acts also tells us that we must come through tribulation, great tribulations, in order to be part of the kingdom of heaven. There's the inference and the idea that we can be saved and actually not part of the kingdom of heaven. If you're taking notes, that reference from uh, tribulations was Acts Acts 14, 21-22. I'll not read it for to save time. But it says there, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is about kingdom living. I know you've heard this time and time again here. Matthew 6, 33. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talking to the disciples. Yeah, other people heard it, but he's talking to the disciples. What's he saying? Matthew 6, 33. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You and I, as believers, we need to seek the kingdom of God. R.T. Kendall says that the, the kingdom of God is the rule of the unquenched spirit in the life of the believer. The rule of the unquenched spirit in the life of you and me, that's what the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is. We can go through life saved and no more. We can go through life, like it says in Job, and be saved by the skin of our teeth. Do you want to turn up in heaven and be not rewarded, not to hear a well done? Do you want to turn up and just make it through the gate somehow? Come on. Do we want to serve God to the best of our ability? Do we want to be rewarded for that when we get to heaven? One of the biggest themes in the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and reward. Jesus talked often about reward. Paul talked about reward. But in the church, we forget about reward. Because somehow it's wrong to think like that. If it's in the Bible, it's something that's relevant to me. Of course we want to be rewarded. And to be rewarded, we're not talking about the, you know, how we can be rewarded here on earth. But I struggle with that. That's another reason for the foot going through the television. But all this, you know, give me ten pounds and I'm gonna get your mortgage is paid off. You know? This is, what is it? Isaiah sixty six one promise? Send me sixty six dollars and ten cents. It's interesting that they never promote the Isaiah one one promise. I don't apologize for saying this. I really don't. Huh? I don't read anywhere in the Bible that I should be a millionaire in this earth. Doesn't mean that it's wrong to have money, but it says that I can't serve both God and money. Whenever I'm looking at prosperity in Scripture, it's about the eternal kingdom. And you and I should be striving for the eternal kingdom, being rewarded in the eternal kingdom, and let God take care of the rest while we're here on earth, in the here and now. I'm out of breath. 
Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> we must be changed. I'm going to pray now in a moment. We must be changed so that we will only want to speak out for God. We will only want to speak the things of God and not to glory ourselves but God alone. You know what kingdom living is all about. You hear it here every weekend. We need to serve God. We need to, look, the American dream is gone, guys. And I'm not having to go at you for being American. I love America. I absolutely do. I've been here many, many times and God has opened doors and I've had the opportunity to preach in America. I love teaching here. I love my own country as well. And everybody across Western society has the American dream, but it's gone. Has anybody recognized that? It's gone. And you know what? I'm glad that it's gone because we're so caught up in it. Life's going to get tough. We're going to be either back to Acts 2 church or you're not going to be church at all. That sounds harsh, but it's the reality of what we're facing. And God's going to allow it. Why would he not? Come on, are we to be prepared as a remnant to reach the rest of this world? Do you think the devil's going to win somehow? The devil's never going to win. There's going to be more people, I believe, who get me into it, in heaven than in hell. I absolutely believe that. Because why would God not win? Come on. And so, but we need to be part of that. We need to serve him now. And verse 8, as I close and as I pray, verse 8 says, And then we can say, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. We can't start at verse 8. We cannot start at verse 8. And I would imagine if I asked for a show of hands, if you've been saved for a while in this room, you've prayed, Here am I, send me. But can we pray? Can we pray? Verses 5, 6, and 7. Can we? That's what I want to pray for today. And just as I close, I want to give people the opportunity in the room, if you're not saved, if you're watching online, to give your life to Jesus Christ for the very first time. Hopefully you've heard the word of God here this morning. If there is any flesh in my heart and any flesh in my words, let's pray that God removes them from your thoughts right now. But if you're watching this within the room, if you're watching this online, if you do not know Jesus as your own and personal Savior, it's a simple thing of admitting that that's the condition that you're in, that you are a sinner. Guess what? We're all born in sin and shaping in iniquity. Romans 3.23 says that we're, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. 6.23 says, for the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 8 says that whilst we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 9, 9 and 10 says that if we believe that that happened, we confess with our mouth that Jesus died and rose again for us. We confess that. We will be saved. If you're watching online, you're in the room here this morning, that's as simple as it can be. doesn't matter your precondition, there's nothing. You can accept Jesus now in the room. I know that people will be praying in the prayer room afterwards if that's what you want to do. If you're watching online, you can contact the church through the contact channels and no doubt they'd be more than willing to talk to you. But if you're here this morning and you think this is your moment, I want to pray for each of us here this morning. I want you to stand. I'm not going to ask for an appeal or anything like that. I just want to pray for you. Okay, let this Irishman pray for you. Be determined, guys. Let's, let's, I'm not making an appeal out of this because it's so easy to stand. It's so easy to put your hand up. It's so easy even to come up here. I'm not saying any of those things are wrong, but I'm serious. Actually, you just need to get serious between you and God. That's, that's really what you need to do. And I'm not saying that you're not. I would imagine that many people in here have already had their moment. I, I would be very surprised if you haven't, but I also know that in a congregation this size, there are people here and you're playing church. I, I know that. And so let's stand. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to hand over to Joe. So let's stand. Let me pray for you. Forgive me if I've tread any toes today. Please do. Remember what I told you. Phil's the one that told me to speak like this. It's Phil you have to talk to afterwards. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for every word that is written between Genesis chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 22. We thank you that you inspired over 40 authors over a period of 15 years. Every word that is written there that is God-breathed, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's there for the breaking down and the division of joints and marrow, Lord. I just thank you for your word, Lord. And I thank you for the challenge that your word brings to us each and every day, Lord. And I pray that we, like Isaiah, can say genuinely that here am I, send me, but that we can also say, woe, me for I, woe is me, for I am lost. 
because I need purged with fire. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you will help each and every one of us to come to that metaphoric altar in our minds right now and that we will be absolutely determined as we leave this building in the here and now that we will serve you to the best of our ability and everything that we do. And whenever we mess up tomorrow, we're going to get up, we're going to shake ourselves off and we're going to have another go. And Lord, I just pray a special blessing on every person in this room, those that are watching online, in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray that you will help us to serve you the best of our ability. And whatever we face, Lord God, we will face it in the strength that you have given us to face it. And Lord, please start revival in California, in the United States of America, and across the world today in the mighty name of Jesus. We pray. Amen.